From Vine Bears New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Portland, Oregon, I'm Zach Jabal. You're still there, man? Yeah. Well, you know. The, <laughs> did you get zoned in? Did you get snowed in? <laughs> I did <laughs> not. I, you know, hopefully, retrospectively, as people listen to this, I am not still in Portland. But uh, at the time of recording, yes, I'm still in Portland. Oh, God. Well, you know, I've been waiting with bated breath to hear all about the ciders that you've been drinking and how amazing they are and how I should try them. So please, Zach, tell us, what ciders have you been drinking? Well, first of all, you shouldn't try them because if you don't like it, you don't like it. And that's cool. I'm not here to, I'm not here to <laughs> convince the, those who, will, who won't open their minds. That's fine. Um, but Joanna, oh! but Joanna, Joanna yes. both as a, as a cider, at least, uh, you know, a dabbler and a, um, and <laughs> the editor-in-chief who I'm pitching a story to about this eventually. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that I've seen here, which confirms some of what I thought kind of going in, is that a lot of the excitement in cider and a lot of the things I tried that were kind of not most interesting, but stood out in certain ways to me were a lot of ciders that were in one way or another either co-fermented or blended or some other way kind of you know modified by other fruits as Adam explained on last episode um and a couple <laughs> of standouts some stuff i'd never tried before a, a montana cidery called a western cider uh they had a really interesting sort of strawberry cider um, and a different one that was made with cherries uh, both were very good uh, i had a really interesting um italian cider which um you, there is like no real cider industry in italy it's a very new thing um but this was a, a cider made with uh, mostly apples and then some quince which was also very cool and um, just a few other things that really um, stood out, you know, some some people doing interesting ferments with wine grapes, of course, and things like that. And attended a really interesting seminar kind of covering a lot of these different hybrid beverages, both on the sort of more wine side with wine grapes and then on the more beer side. So kind of blends of cider apple or, you know, fermenting apple juice with, you know, wort basically and and creating these sort of interesting mashups of beer and cider and so it's been did you try those i did yeah and you know i will be honest that side of it is personally less appealing to me less interesting to me than the stuff that moves more into the kind of as i wrote about for the site a couple years ago these kind of multi-fruit wines or whatever you kind of call them but these blendings of of wine grapes and apples or wine grapes and pears or other fruits and apples and such and and just to me find more kind of both enjoyable expression and an expression of whatever fermented alcohol i guess or fermented beverage that is i think more aligned with what a lot of drinkers are looking for which are these kind of bolder flavors interesting flavors a sort of dynamic uh that is you see creeping into other parts of beverage for sure and and cider has an interesting kind of way into it because it is obviously a fruit-based product uh, to start with so i've also <laughs> drank some wine so you know that uh, by keeping gotta, so much gotta even it out <laughs> I mean, yeah. everyone needs a palate cleanser. And I no sure cocktails do. or anything while you're out there. Uh, I had a part of a Negroni. That's as all. That's all I managed. But it's been. I've been not. Uh, you know, as Adam pointed out, it's not been a very dry uh, few days. So you know, we'll we'll return to to the safety of the NA space for a few more weeks after this. But uh, this week, you all get to hear about uh, all of the various alcoholic beverages I've consumed. Joanna, how about you? What have you been drinking? Nice. Yeah. So um, this past weekend, made another cocktail that I haven't tried before: the Army and Navy. Nice. Which was really good. That's um, gin, orgeat, lemon juice, uh, some ango, and I didn't have a grapefruit twist, so I did a lemon twist. But that was really good. Um, and also had a nice bottle of Ramado from uh, Yakima Valley producer Sage Rat, who I had actually 
bought this bottle before uh, one of our listeners wrote in and told us about Sage Rat. So um, that was really good, too. Um, Yeah, I think that was those are the highlights from this uh, past week. What about you, Adam? So over the weekend, it was a long one, wasn't it, folks? Oh, yes, it was a long weekend. A nice one. (laughs) Uh, So I first went to back to Kiki's with family during the day, which was great, which is like nice. a Greek taverna. And I just had yeah. literally a carafe with friends of Ayurvedic, which was delicious mm-hmm. and really easy, like daytime red wine. Uh, they serve it chilled. We love a good chilled red here at Vine Bear. <laughs> well, some of us do. Others also, you know, I'm not going to tell them what to like. But uh, anyways, um, <laughs> I enjoyed it. And then on Monday night, I met up with my friend Dave, and we had two really uh, great bottles of wine. But the one that really stood out for me was a wine called Les Boulines. It's 2021 from uh, Anjou's a Shannon. It was fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, just really, really delicious. And it was great with like the sort of small plates that we were eating at this uh, really wonderful restaurant in Fort Green called Lorena mm-hmm. Pastaficio, which has an amazing wine list. Uh, so those were my highlights, um, and I think I've gotten to the bottom of what ruined cider for me. And I just want to—I want to tell oh, you. Oh, sure, yeah. please. It was a restaurant called Wassail, which existed in oh, the Lower yeah. East Side of New York, and I just went there once. With oh, it was, it was a cider bar, right? Yes, and I had yeah, a yeah. horrible experience, and they were just so snobby. <laughs> and I think that's what did it. So I just—I had to come clean. I had to let everyone know that I was thinking about it while Zach was talking, <laughs> and I think that was—I think that was where it turned for me. I wanted to. I went. I went in so excited and. I just, I, you know, it was like, ugh. anyways, but I'm glad you're having fun, Zach. And uh, look, everyone at Vine can like different things. That's, what's, that's what makes the publication yeah. special. Um, so, Zach, why don't, you, why don't you set today's topic? Well, it's actually really interesting that you finished with that kind of anecdote because it, I feel like it actually kind of relates to what we're going to talk about today in this idea of, you know, kind of the ongoing, there's always an ongoing tension within certain industries and especially within sort of certain sub-communities of, you know, kind of how do you, how does that sub, subgroup or the, the sort of industry people within it talk amongst themselves and how does that relate to how they interact with the broader uh, sort of, you know, the public, right? People, consumers, drinkers, et cetera. And we wanted to talk about the sort of what we're calling the kind of bartender bubble, um, and I think there's a way in which all of these industries, whether they're, you know, your, your sommeliers, whether you're, they're your sort of top end bartenders and, you know, mixologists, or they're your cicerones and your, um, palmologists, as apparently the cider folks call themselves in certain cases. <laughs> um, I'm not going to touch that one. Anyhow, the point is, there is a real i think there's a real risk and i think wine is very instructive here when those sort of small community is made up of very let's say individuals who tend towards a kind of snobbery that adam described and and or a kind of level of exclusivity that when that becomes the public face of a category it can really, I think, do some lasting damage. And I think it, that is to some extent true for wine. I think wine has had a lot of problems. We've documented them pretty widely on the podcast. We will continue to do so. But one of them was that the people talking about wine in, to the public in a lot of cases were people who were to a reasonable segment of the wine drinking population or the potential wine drinking population were unappealing ambassadors for the category, right? They were obsessed with certain kinds of, you know, very, you know, sort of obscure or hard to find or small production products. They tended to, you know, 
use their knowledge as a way to look down upon the average drinker and in general were you know, kind of poor ambassadors for the category. And I think we're seeing this start to happen or it can maybe uh, take over more in in the drink space and in the sorry, in the cocktail space, I should say, in the spirit space. And, you know, I want to kind of open this up to the both of you in a moment here. But I think where it becomes where you tend to see it, I think, at its most pervasive and pernicious is when it comes to some of the categories that are experiencing surges in public interest, but where people are broadly very unfamiliar. So you think about things like Amaro, right, where there's a huge gap between the sort of general public understanding of the category and what a person who works in the trade might know. And, you know, we've talked about, we've experienced, I think, all of us, those moments where it can be, even for us, you know, all of us who are quite knowledgeable by public standards can be intimidated by or turned off by a kind of like a, what do you mean you haven't tried this Amaro or you're not familiar with where that one is from? Or like, oh my God, I can't believe you like Averna to use an example that I actually had said to me <laughs> once. Um, that person sucks. But anyhow, um, the point is that I worry is as as spirits are and cocktails are on this kind of ascendant trajectory, you know, now more, you know, more volume, more sales than than wine, et cetera. Yet this this kind of snobbery and this kind of yeah i don't know the, the bubble it does feel like it is it is it is a problem or at least something that needs to be talked about i don't know what say the two of you yeah i don't know i'm you know just thinking through this and i think that there's definitely you know this risk of being completely dis for the bartenders who exist in this bubble right because it's not all of them but some of them that there's they run the risk of um you know being disconnected from most consumers yes. most drinkers right across the country i think this this happens in major cities in new york city probably the most uh maybe cities around the the world and i think there's there's a problem there right because like that's a bummer you don't want that you don't want to be disconnected but i also think that It'll never kind of happen as we've seen it happen in the wine space because the snobbery in the wine space feels more pervasive. I think that maybe comes with some of the certifications that happen in wine. And I also just think that wine as a category feels, a l and we've talked about this a million times, but like feels a lot um, more inaccessible to people than spirits do and ever will right because even if you have you know some mixologist who cares about them only the most obscure amaro that you can still order like a highball from them and have a good experience you know what i mean in the in a way that with wine like if you don't get it you can feel totally alienated mm -hmm. yeah i think you're right i think Wine allows for a little bit more – I think there's always been judgments in spirits, um, but I think wine tends to be judgier because the moments in which wine is ordered tend to often be moments that, that have more tension for whatever reason because people feel a little bit more unsure of themselves. Right. Right? So it's like – you walk like the be the best example that I have is a conversation I was having with my f these friends I was at dinner with over the weekend where it's like 
you're, the customer walks in and asks for a Cabernet Sauvignon and like the psalm waxes on about how they don't like Cabernet and they don't have Cabernet and this list doesn't have Cabernet and like well. that that's happened more. <laughs> Look, there and I also think like with bars they have the, the the place that they risk alienating is if all of a sudden they they want to educate consumers on why they are why a brand they love is bad. I think that that can be a, a mistake. Like if you don't ha- you shouldn't stock the brand, then then you can easily say, "Sorry, we we just we don't carry X, Y, or Z." Right? Like a lot of people stopped carrying Plantation Rum uh, over the last few years because of the connection that the brand had to plantation slavery uh, issues in the Caribbean, etc. Now the brand has rebranded itself. We'll see if those places to Plantery. Yeah. Which Plantaray, Plantaray, Plantaray right. which some bartenders have still have issues with. But again, so if they have issues with the brand, then don't stock it, right? right? And then you can answer to a consumer as to, sorry, we just don't we don't carry plantation. I can't make your daiquiri with that, or I can't make your mai tai with that. But I can make it with these rums that I love. Uh, whereas if you have it, but then you say to the consumer, "Oh, sorry, I'll serve it to you," but like this brand fucking sucks. Then, then you come off looking like an asshole. I think that's the same as like if you if the brand changes proof and you still carry the brand, but then you take it upon yourself to educate the consumer that you don't like the brand anymore because the proof is lower. That can also turn someone off, right? As opposed to just saying, "Oh, hey, yeah, if, if you want this this brand, great, here you go. It is what it is." Or, "Sorry, we don't carry that anymore. Why don't you carry it?" Well, they changed the proof and it didn't work for us for the program that we do here. So, therefore, here's other. You know, vodkas, gins, et cetera, that we like. I think that it, it's just always felt like in wine, there's more of a like desire to get on a high horse and educate a customer. Because I think we just assume that everyone who in wine is a novice, and it's our duty as people who are wine professionals to do the educating. And, oh, I can't believe you know how that. Let me tell you all about this producer. When most consumers don't care, they just want to drink what they want to drink. And that's, I think, the fear that that's the danger that could happen in spirits is if it becomes this desire to like massively educate and overly try to explain to a consumer why they should be drinking tequila, tequila they should be drinking mezcal. And here's all the reasons why: like tequila is not an authentic spirit, mezcal is, and you're making a bad decision. But I think at the end of the day, the why that hasn't happened as much in the spirits world is because we've talked about this a bunch before. It seems that like bartenders often through just how they come up in the industry are much more hardwired to make money and Hmm. like if this is going to sell it's going to sell and like that's just kind of the culture of being a bartender like i'm here to just pour the 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 guests what they want and like like if you if you let your ego get in the way you're leaving money on the table kind of thing and that's kind of like always been the culture in bars and hmm. I think a lot of the culture in, in in wine over the last, like, 20 years, or at least, has been about, like, it being the Psalms program. Sure. And the Psalms perspective. And that can then lead to it not often being about the bottom line, primarily being about, like, the vision that this one person had, which can then be a turnoff to certain consumers, as opposed to just making sure you have everything. Because every bartender that we talk to who even has issues with some of these brands says, oh, but I still stock it because if it sells, it sells. Yeah. Right. If people ask for it, then I yeah. have to have it. Yeah. yeah. And you don't see that as much, right? Like, 
with like with wines, right? They're, they're, you know how many people would sell a fuck ton of red blends if they had them on their list? Probably a ton, but they don't like them, so they don't have them. Sure. I do think that there's a point here where it's important to note that some of what we're discussing may maybe might be subject to change as the sort of mix of what's sold in restaurants is changing, right? We've talked on the pod a few times about how wine's primacy at the dinner table and restaurant lists and things like that is really slipping away. And cocktails in particular are a lot of what's taking its place. And I think that you're not wrong to say that bartenders generally are the people who tend to be more pragmatic about it. They're like, yeah, if someone's going to pay me for it, great. I don't really care if the every drink I'm mixing is the most incredible beverage. I just am trying to you know, trying to get through tickets, trying to serve people, you know, get my shift done, make my money, et cetera. But I think when you start putting cocktails in a broader context in restaurants, you start seeing them served throughout meals. You start seeing people creating programs that are centered around more of that kind of cocktail pairing thing. You do run into a place where potentially some of the reasons why customer uh, insecurity around wine was an important or, or kind of could be, I don't want to say exploited, but could be a, a point of friction between that, the, the guest and the sommelier or server or whomever. I think that, you know, as the cocktail world looks to push boundaries, as it looks to do things, you know, take in new ingredients, create new uh, concepts to, you know, kind of expand to do a better job of of being a bigger part of the dining experience as opposed to just the thing you drink before or after you eat or when you're not eating or whatever. There is danger in the kind the same kind of approach to service because so many so many of the moments when you're doing that kind of service right in meal while someone is dining there is much more of an attention on pairing right we talk about that whether it's a good idea or not wine does this i think cocktails you're seeing do this and that's when you start getting into this place of telling people what they should and shouldn't drink because there becomes much more important right if you sit down at the bar in a at a cocktail bar or even in a restaurant and you're just having a drink yeah, the bartender probably doesn't really give a shit what you're drinking. They don't care if you drink an old fashioned or a daiquiri or uh, you know, a Jack and Coke. Like they're just going to make a drink and they're going to move on. But when you put it in the context of a meal, in the context of pairing, and the idea of like this is a part of the experience, that is where I think you start to see more of the kind of again the bubble, the snobbery, at least be a threat. And I don't mean to say it's happening. I think you know you see it places from time to time. You see programs that are clearly dogmatic about things when it comes to cocktails or spirits that I'm not sure makes sense to be so dogmatic about, at least from where I sit. And, um, you know, again, you, you're going to be experiencing, you're going to be putting guests in a position where they're experiencing drinks, experiencing spirits that are new to them or in a context that's new to them. And that's where I do wonder if the instinct that drove a lot of what the kind of snobbery and off-putting kind of behavior from Psalms, will that bleed into cocktail service? I don't know. I mean, this is speculative. It's not something I've seen a lot of because we're still at the vanguard of this change, right? It is a, it is a thing that is happening at a pretty rapid rate over the last year or two, and it, therefore it's a little hard sometimes to know. But but I, I see it, little bits and pieces of it out there, and it's always hard to know whether those little bits and pieces are uh, leading indicators of a broader trend or if they're just one-offs that people send to me because they had a shitty experience and you know people like to tell us about their shitty service experiences because we uh you know we we empathize so i don't know yeah i think that this type of behavior in the bartending space is actually what 
makes it appealing to people. And mm. I, I think that to have, that's what makes, you know, bartending kind of the more, the more insidery it is, the more appealing it is to people, the more innovative it seems, the more it seems like it's pushing, pushing bartending and mixology forward. Yeah. Like you have to have people like that. Otherwise, where will the innovation come from? And I think that we've seen a lot of bars open in New York recently, cocktail bars, that the more like insane is not the right word for it, but like the more, you know, bells and whistles and crazy sophisticated cocktail drinking experiences they offer, the more appealing it is to people and the harder they are to get into. What do you think of that? I, I think that is where cocktails is. I also think that at least for right now, like the bigger the bigger issue I do think there's a bubble. There there always is a risk of a bubble and there's always a, a risk of snobbery. But I honestly think right now the benefit that cocktails have is that more people out there than not don't see cocktails as snobbery. They see them as fun. Yeah. Sure. And more people than not see wine as snobby and not as fun. And that's the that is the the ultimate answer here. And like until wine fixes that problem, I'm not so certain that we should worry that much about a few people thinking of cocktails as being snobby, because like even even look at Shinji's right. Well, which, this is what I'm thinking of, like right. places like Shinji's and Martini. That place and, is expensive as fuck, right? And people are willing to suffer the exclusivity of these places and like the expense of them because the cocktails are really fun, right? They make an orange Julius inside an orange. Right. Like so yes, it's expensive, but like it's really fun and you can drink it and have fun with your friends and they know how to have a good time and I think and when they do come over to your table, they're not holier than thou. They're really friendly and they're just excited that you're there and like, yeah, they're excited you're there because you're about to buy a twenty something dollar cocktail. So like yeah. ching ching. <laughs> but uh I, I I do think that's the difference. And again, I don't know what this this is not a wine podcast, we don't talk about this, like how we make wine fun. But uh, I think that's that's the tension that we're sitting at right now is that just cocktail doesn't matter if it gets snobby if the majority of people still think it's fun and a lot of people don't think wine's fun right now they just think it's snobby and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what you think though. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair dot com and do you see there being this sort of sort of like potentially down the road threat to the world of spirits? Uh, what do you think of the bubble? Let us know again. As we know every industry has a Jack Black, so you know we'll just. So from high fidelity, from high fidelity. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You have to say that. <laughs> Every industry has a high fidelity Jack Black. Not Jack Black the person. He seems real fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, but otherwise, uh, let us know. Pocketsofmindbear.com. Zach, I hope you get home from Portland, buddy. <laughs> Me too. I mean, <laughs> it's a long time to be there. Yeah. It's a fun town, but like. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm woo! ready to go home. <laughs> back to back to the bigger Portland. Yeah, right. A little north. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a rivalry? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. Is there a rivalry between New York and like Philadelphia? Kind of, but also like you Fuck know, no, it's our little brother. Yeah, that's that's how it is here. Our, really, San Francisco is our rival, but yeah, exactly. That's what I think. And like for sports teams too, right? Well, or who are your big sports teams rivals? Uh, well, I mean, the Mariners' biggest rival is their ownership group right now, and um, <laughs> the Seahawks' biggest rival is definitely the Forty ers So I guess we're one Spoken. for two there. I, I like couldn't tell you for the Kraken. I guess maybe the uh, so. Vancouver Canucks. I suppose. That is spoken like a true family. You're like, our biggest rival of the owners, I hate them. <laughs> like, that's just someone who's real 
all broken yeah. right now. Oh, our our okay. my our Mariner fan listeners, the three of them out there, will will know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I for, I will not be on uh, on Friday or next Monday because I'll be in California. Uh, so I guess I'll talk to you guys. Just not devoted to the yeah. Podcast. I was to say Adam doesn't show Some of us have actual meetings. We're not just drinking juice. <laughs> You'll be doing some of that too. Just grape juice, the superior juice. Mm-hmm. And with that, I will talk to you guys when I get back. Have a good week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.